a man who is so bad at baseball, he went to jail. And then we traveled to Kelvin, Arizona, to take a look at the story of four men who were out there one day looking for rocks. Instead, they found one of the most puzzling UFO stories we've ever covered. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm not having a great day, and I want to be honest with you guys, but I really do hope you're having a great day. I'm struggling with the news coming out of Texas of the guy walking into the elementary school and shooting a bunch of little kids. Little kids. I'm not saying it's okay to shoot adults, right? I'm not saying that. But little kids, you know what I mean? I'm walking around. So what I wanted to do today, felt like I needed to take a little bit of break. Because the stuff we cover on this show can be pretty dark, and I I need to clear my head. So I wanted to cover some stories today that were fun. Fun, true true crime stories. And then a really fun alien story to end the week out. We'll be back next week, but and we'll be back to (laughs) the normal depressing stuff. But I wanted to have one day... We had some fun stuff, so I started digging through all of my notes, and I found two really cool stories to talk about. And I wanted to bring in today's legacy Patreon supporter, walking into Dead Rabbit Command right now. Everyone, give it up for Hot Diggity Dane! Woo, yeah! Come on, <laughs> come on, in, Hot Diggity Dane's like you, okay, bro? As I just clap silently, Hot Diggity Dane, you're going to be our captain, our pilot this episode. And I want to say this too: Hot Diggity Dane left a really cool review about the podcast, that he was up to actually be on the Legacy Patreon list. I have, like, a list we rotate through. But I also loved that review you left, my friend, longtime listener of the show, longtime supporter of the show, Hot Diggity Dane. I hope you are ready to be flying these vehicles and driving these vehicles and taking us wherever we need to go for these fun, fun stories. First off, Hot Diggity Dane, I'm going to toss you a conductor's cap and a shovel to get that coal in the carpenter caboose. We're leaving behind Dead Rabbit Command. We're choo-choo-chooing all the way out to Chattanooga, Tennessee. I got pretty much all the information for this story from an article written by Andrew Martin. Links in the show notes. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say the title of the article because I don't want to give it away. But Andrew, great article. I recommend you guys checking it out. It's a really, really fun story, and that's why we're profiling it today. The year is 1885, and we're headed out to Chattanooga, Tennessee. This is old-timey story, so get on your pantaloons and and your sepia-toned clothes. We're going back to the year 1885. Back in 1885, baseball was the thing. People were walking around with bats. (laughs) They weren't droogs. They weren't beating up homeless people. They were walking around with bats and balls. They were ready to play baseball. Baseball fever had struck in the United States. And at this time, you had a lot of baseball teams. But the way it worked, it's 1885. You couldn't pick up the phone. You couldn't Zoom call with somebody. You could pretty much, if you were a team and you needed new players, you could scout for players east of St. Louis, Missouri. You could actually Take a train, go out to a game in Boston, be like, crack, oh, look at that ball go. There goes Jerry Mann, and Jerry Mann's running around, and some guy's like, oh, I want him for my team. 
But if you wanted a player west of St. Louis, Missouri, they really hadn't had any infrastructure built for that. I mean, they had trains and stuff like that. It still wasn't just barren wildland. But the baseball organizations didn't have its tentacles in the West. And so people are constantly like you're fighting for the same pool of players. You would basically be having agents go out and they're not going to be able to get a guy who's currently on a team. And then everyone would be scouting out the colleges. I wonder if they had high school baseball back then. I could have easily Googled it, but I didn't. You could only find so many players and you had all these different teams trying to get players. So what would happen is you would have to start to turn west. But you didn't have any scouts out there. The eastern teams didn't have anyone out there whose job was just to look for baseball players. So this is how they did it back then. They asked you. They basically would say, how good are you? And the players would go, I'm the best. I'm the best baseball player west of St. Louis, Missouri. You never heard of me? I'm the best. You would just send them your stats. You would just send them, not like on official paper, nothing was actually judged by anyone. You could write down how good you were and you would submit it to teams in the East because that was a place to play. We did have teams in the West, like in California and stuff like that, but you wanted to be on the East Coast. That's where the big teams were. The big franchises were out East. In 1885, the city of Chattanooga, for their team, they are looking for new players. And in 1885, Jack Sheridan, a 23-year-old man in San Jose, California, begins writing letters to baseball teams all over the East Coast talking about how good he was. Talking about all the different teams he played for in San Francisco. And Chattanooga, the Chattanooga Lookouts, they... Decided to, they decided to believe all these letters. And they sent him train money to head on out east. He's super excited. Yes, finally I'll be able to play ball with the big boys. So he gets his money, gets on the train, and it still takes a while to get over there. It's not like Amtrak today where you're across the country in like two days. These are old choo-choo trains. So he gets to Chattanooga, and the Chattanooga lookouts are like, dude, we saw your stats. And it's time to play ball. <laughs> Imagine as the train pulls up, they're like, hurry up, hurry up, Jack. The game started 10 minutes ago. He starts playing for the Chattanooga lookouts. And he sucks. He's terrible. He's so bad at baseball. He becomes famous for being bad at baseball. In 1940, so what is that? 60 years later, there's an article being written about Jack Sheridan. And in this article, they quote a guy named Mike Fisher. He was the co-founder of the Pacific Coast League. And he said about Jack Sheridan, he couldn't, quote, field the ball with a fishnet or hit one with a tennis racket, unquote. So imagine 60 years after your career started, people were still making comments about how bad you were. He was so terrible that historians don't understand, <laughs> historian, baseball historians don't understand how this happened. They go, how do the Chattanooga lookouts get bamboozled by this guy? We don't have the letters that he actually sent out to the Chattanooga lookouts. People, people would love to see how badly he exaggerated his numbers. But some people say because we don't have the actual letters he wrote to the Chattanooga lookouts, it's so a lot of people think he lied. A lot of people think that he actually was bamboozling them. 
the entire time. When he was writing his letters, he's like, oh yeah, once I hit this ball and it flew around the earth twice and hit Bluto in the back of the head. I eats me spinach. Some people think that he actually lied. Other people say he was telling the truth, but his stats were West Coast stats. So against all these other teams on the West Coast, which was completely removed from the East Coast League, he was a good player. But when you got out and you were playing with these teams that were filled with the best players on the East Coast, right? Everyone's going after the same talent pool. They're constantly trying to get the very best players who are competing against the very best players. And then all of these washouts in California are just writing down notes. Some people say that his stats were correct. He just was not playing very good players. He was so bad, though, he got arrested and went to jail. What happened was the Chattanooga Lookouts, after several games and just practicing with this guy, <laughs> probably just hanging out with him, he's like, what? I can eat 50 steaks in one sitting. And once I chopped down an entire forest with one swing of my axe, they're like, okay, that last one was Paul Bunyan. And we know that's not true. He was, he was sent to jail for fraud. The Chattanooga Lookouts actually went to the police and said, this guy said he was good at baseball. We sent him money to take a train over here that was not cheap. It was not cheap. He lied to us. They went to the police. The police issued a warrant for his arrest for fraud. And he ended up being found guilty for fraud. He was kicked off the team and he was ordered to pay them the money back. Like a court order, a judge goes, you are so bad at baseball. I've seen those games. I was betting on the Chattanooga lookouts. You cost me a lot of money. I order you to pay back your train ticket. Jack Sheridan got a job at a local cigarette factory to make enough money to pay his ticket back. And he's sitting there and he's like rolling cigarettes. <laughs> one for you, one for me. Making all these cigarettes. And he's sitting on this assembly line and thinking, this isn't the end of good old Jack Sheridan. This is so awesome. I love this story. Jack Sheridan did not give up on his dream. His dream was playing baseball. He wasn't good at baseball, but he kept playing. He played for a team in Kentucky. He played for a team in Atlanta. And they're like, dude, you're not really that good. Like, sure, you do give us free cigarettes. You have these pockets full of tobacco, but you're not that good. And I think he starts to realize that he might be West Coast good, but he doesn't want to go back there, right? He probably owes a bunch of money for fraud out there as well. So, he decides, you know what, I love baseball so much, I just want to be part of the game. He becomes an umpire. People say, until Jack Sheridan started umpiring, umpires were universally hated, right? Those are the people who are going, foul ball, you're out of here, strike! People don't like their calls, the players don't like the calls. It's just a huge thing, but Jack Sheridan, he was so good at his job that people respected him. And in turn, he kind of set the standard for what an umpire should do. He basically took a job everyone hated and made it respected because you respected Jack Sheridan and the new umpires were following his model. He makes such a name for himself that he ends up becoming a trusted friend of Ban Johnson who created the National League, which is half of Major League Baseball. Now you have the National League and the American League, 
And the whole time he's being an umpire, he's setting the standard for what it means to be an umpire. And he was also an undertaker. So sometimes he'd be like, you know what, I don't know if I'm going to come back next season. I really need to have a job where people respect me. <laughs> it's just a bunch of dead bodies there. And Van Johnson would have to talk him back each season. He's like, no, dude, listen, you're the best umpire. You are what everyone else strives for in this industry. Well, the umpiring part, not the baseball part. We got baseball players who strive to be better baseball players. But you, Jack Sheridan, you need to be this umpire. And it was interesting, right? You have a guy who had a dream to be one thing, and it didn't work out, but he loved it so much, he stayed a part of the organization, and he created this position, right? It did exist, but everyone just threw tomatoes at him all the time. And if they're lucky, sometimes it was a 92-mile-an-hour speedball right at the back of their head. I think that would actually be manslaughter if a baseball player did that. But in the end, he says, yeah, I'll be an umpire, He's waving goodbye to the bodies. He's like, oh, my only friends. They're just decaying there in the corner. He keeps umping. He keeps being an umpire until the age of 52. He's fairly young. Very young man. In the year 1914, he's 52 years old. And he's being an umpire. And it's like super hot. And everyone's all sweaty and stuff like that. They're in Chicago. It's supposed to be Windy City. But this day, it was the Heaty City. He's umping this game. He's like, oh, man, I wish I sure was in the refrigerator unit of my old Undertaker's office. Oh, that would be a cool place. He's kicking back. He's kicking back with some lemonade. He has a body posed like a butler. Thank you, sir. That would have been that would have definitely prolonged his life. Because in 1914, he's umping this game in Chicago, and he died of a heat stroke. He died doing what he, he, he kind of loved, being an umpire. But definitely died being part of an organization he loved, which would have been baseball or the sport that he loved. So this guy who was so bad at baseball, he was actually sentenced for fraud. Now he's in the Hall of Fame. He's in the Baseball Hall of Fame. And his hometown of San Jose has a statue of him. It would be awesome if the statue was in the county jail, the little statues behind bars. But probably not. They probably... Don't treat his statue like that. So there's the story of Jack Sheridan. I found that story very uplifting, despite the fact that that involves a lot of dead bodies and a man failing at his dreams. But I think that's super important. I've met people who really, really want to be musicians, but they're not good musicians. However, they're good managers. And I always say, do that. Do that. I think there is an easy way to do that. I love to tell stories. And for years, I was trying to write fictional books, right? I was trying to write fiction. And while I've written a couple screenplays and things like that, this is more fitting for me. I still get to tell these stories. I still get to use my skills as a storyteller to take notes, to do research, right? Journalism background. I do research, I take my notes, and then I translate those notes into a story for you. So I think that sometimes you do. I was trying so hard to be a novelist, but I think this is far more, far more fulfilling for me. Pays a lot, pays a lot less money, but I love it. And I love spending this time with you guys. So sometimes, and just keep that in mind as you go forward in life. Sometimes the passion that you want, you may not be able to get that exact thing, but there might be a place right next to it. There's all sorts of other routes into the industry you love. So I love this story. 
about Jack Sheridan. I found it the other day, and I'm glad I was able to share it with you on this Friday. Hot diggity Dane, let's go ahead and toss you the keys to the Carboner Copter. We are leaving behind San Jose, California. We're waving goodbye to a statue. <laughs> People are like, why are those guys just standing in the corner going, bye, bye, Jack, bye, as they watch the Carpenter Copter descend from the clouds above. Everyone, let's jump on board as Hot Diggity Dane takes us out of here. We're headed all the way out to Kelvin, Arizona. The other day I made a comment on the show, which I totally believe. I say this all the time behind the scenes, and I've said it maybe once or twice on the podcast. This podcast is not for casuals, right? People who listen to Dead Rabbit Radio, they have a really wide knowledge base of paranormal stuff. That's why we don't cover like Stonehenge or the Bermuda Triangle or Roswell. We've talked about those things in passing, but generally I believe when you're listening to this show, you have had at least like a year, if not a couple decades, really. You could be anywhere in between of researching this stuff yourself. Reading Time Life books, watching Ancient Aliens, checking out YouTube videos, listening to other podcasts. So we don't talk about Bigfoot. We talk about Mormon Bigfoot or the time that Ed and Lorraine Warren <laughs> telepathically communicated with Bigfoot, right? We find the more weird stories. I'll put those episodes in the show notes. What's interesting, though, is that that is how it tends to happen, right? You are a, a young kid, right? Or you're in your 20s or something, and you start to look into this stuff. And usually the first things you find are stories like Roswell, are stories like Whitley Stryber's Communion. Just you might come across a conspiracy theory about reptilians or gray aliens or something like that. So we have that, right? And that kind of informs our idea of what aliens are, UFOs are. A lot of people watch The X-Files. Like that was their first big introduction. They were young. The X-Files was on. It's a really cool show. And so they already have a working background knowledge of what a UFO looks like and what a gray alien looks like and how they act in abductions, cattle mutilations, anal probes, all that stuff. You have a basic working knowledge. And that's kind of how the culture filters things through. Imagine, though, if you are, you don't even, you're not even into UFOlogy, right? You've never heard of Roswell. You've never had any experience with that stuff. And this is the very first UFO story you heard. This is this is such a bizarre encounter that even I'm having trouble kind of classifying it. Let's take a look at this. It's October 1976. We're in Kelvin, Arizona. It's specifically the desert area surrounding Kelvin. It's noon. Out in this desert area, there's these four guys, and they have a hobby. They love grabbing turquoise. They just hold it temporarily and they're like, hobby achieved, and they drop it. No, I think they also sell it. I don't think that they're just rubbing their bodies on a turquoise stone and then going home. They're out there and they actually have uncovered a turquoise vein. So they got this big chunk of turquoise and they're like, we hit it, boys. Hobby achieved. And they're like giving each other high fives and stuff like that. The one guy is rubbing his body on the turquoise vein. They're like, Marcus, stop. And that's when they see something flying through the sky. This is noon, right? Blue sky, couple clouds, sun right above their heads. You couldn't ask for any better time to observe a UFO. 
But what they see flying through the sky is the desert. They're looking at a chunk of the desert floating in the sky. And this chunk of desert, I almost imagine it if you use the cutout tool on like a paint shop program and you cut out a block of dirt and then moved it up into the sky and they just go, I'm done. <laughs> Teacher, do I get an A on this? This is my Photoshop project. They're watching a chunk of the desert, the sandy soil of Arizona fly through the sky. And then about a hundred yards away from where these men were, who I assume at this point have dropped their jaws and their equipment, they watch this chunk of desert fly down and it lands. A little ramp appears, appears in this chunk of desert and a door opens up. Right now, we're already looking at the, the way that this is talked about in UFOlogy. I got this from thinkaboutitdocs.com, one of my favorite websites for the show. They got it from a book called UFOs Over New Mexico, A True History of Extraterrestrial Encounters in the Land of Enchantment. Which has gotten great reviews online, by the way. I recommend a lot of you guys checking it out. I, I do want to get a copy myself. but They go, this ship must have had some sort of cloaking technology at this point. That it would... <laughs> it's not that good, right? If you're going to have cloaking technology, make, maybe it's just a guess, aliens. It's just, a, I don't know, just a suggestion. Maybe cloak against the background that you're flying on. Don't be an image of the ocean, crystal blue water, flying over the midnight skies of Moscow. Probably not a great idea. If you're in the sky... Maybe be a cloud. Maybe be the one thing that everyone just sees in the clouds. I've wondered, and I've said this on a past episode, I wonder how many clouds are actually UFOs. I'm not saying they all are. I'm not saying like 10% of them are. But if I was an alien ship, I would just disguise myself as a cloud constantly. There's a Care Bear riding on me all the time. I'm like, get off, get off. Got to chase him off with the broom. The idea is that this is some sort of cloak. I mean, what, what terrible cloak, right? What a terrible disguise. You're going to try to sneak your way into the White House so your disguise is an upside-down butler. Like, you're just walking on your head. People are like, what? Yeah, sure, you look human. And you're wearing human clothes, but you're clearly floating two inches off the ground. And that's your head down there. And your legs are doing this weird walking motion. You're under arrest. The, the ground lands, right? The ground lands and this door opens up. This little ramp comes down. This door opens up. That's not even the weirdest stuff, right? The cloaking thing. It's just bizarre. But the doors open up. The ramp comes down and out steps two humans. Normal looking human dudes. Wearing shorts and t-shirts. And after the two men step out of this vehicle, out comes two women, Earth women, right? Not sexy reptilian alien women, just regular, just regular old boring Earth women. Two women step out of the vehicle and three human children. And the four witnesses, the four witnesses are looking at this and going, wait, wait, what? Like, you wouldn't be surprised if you saw this group at a Chuck E. Cheese. 
because that's <laughs> totally normal. You might not even be, you wouldn't even be surprised if you saw them in the desert. You would just assume they were out here, maybe trying to find your turquoise vein. You have to kill them before they find it. But if you saw other humans just walking around in the desert, assuming that you're not in the middle of the Sahara, it wouldn't be super surprising. But they came out of a piece of the desert that was previously floating in the sky. These obviously aren't what we would consider human, even though they look like humans. Two men, two women, three kids. And then the two men walk back up onto the ship. And they bring out all of these things. They kept saying in the description, it looked like, it seemed like. But it's almost like they don't, they don't want to admit that this is what they actually pulled out. So they go, it looked like this. But in reality, because it's so insane what's going on here. The two men walk back out of this piece of the desert with a barbecue. With a barbecue grill, right? And they set it up. And then the two women go in and they bring out a, what a quote, what appears to be a cooler. Like something you're going to throw your bud in, something you're going to throw a couple sodas in for the kids and me, because I don't drink beer. They bring out this cooler and the men go back in and they bring out a table and a couple metallic chairs and then the kids go in and get their toys. And they start to have a barbecue. In the middle of the desert at noon. From a floating piece of the dirt. That's where they got all their stuff. Again, if they were getting the stuff out of a station wagon, we wouldn't be talking about it. But they didn't. These, what only can be described as aliens, right? At this point, even though they look totally human and they act totally human. They have stepped out of a vehicle beyond our understanding. <laughs> Probably beyond their own if they can't get the camouflage technology to work right. And the two families, we can assume, based on traditional family structure, are sitting there eating this delicious barbecue food <laughs> that smells all wafting over to the turquoise miners. They're like, no, Jerry, don't go over there. Don't go over there. He's like floating. His nose is floating on the smells. What would you do, right? I mean, on any other thing, I probably would be like, hey, buddy, I haven't seen you so long. Give me some chicken. Yum, yum, yum. I've crashed. I've crashed so many barbecues in my life. But uh, I don't think I, I don't know if I would want to crash this one. I probably would. But I'd probably, I'd probably be slower. I'd probably be sneakier about it. The four men are standing there and they don't know what to make of this. Because they just saw something that shouldn't exist, and then it turned into something that totally exists. A barbecue. Family barbecue. Kids are playing with toys. People are eating food. It's delicious. It's fun. And the dudes don't know what to do. The four turquoise miners. I don't think they're like, oh, let's leave them to their business, gentlemen. We gotta mine this turquoise. They're watching this. They have no idea, like, what in the world is going on? Until eventually, from the picnic, from this little barbecue that's going on, one of the men looks over at the turquoise miners, gets up and walks over there. He walks over to them and he goes, hey, guys, what's going on? What are you guys up to out here? And the four dudes are just kind of looking at each other. They're like, uh... Uh, we're mining for turquoise. That's what we do. You see, we've uncovered this turquoise vein. And the man kind of shook his head and goes, 
I'll never understand humans and their fascination with rocks. <laughs> Turned around. Walked back to the barbecue. And after a while, the family packed their stuff back up. Kids got their toys. Ladies got the cooler. The men got the barbecue, the tables and the chairs. And they all loaded this vehicle, this chunk of dirt that is just sitting there. They all walked back up the ramp. The ramp disappeared. And the sand flew away. Now, imagine if that was the very first... Imagine if you are 10. And that was the very first UFO story you ever heard. After that, whenever you're watching X-Files, you're like, Oh no, the season finale. I wonder if the vacationers are going to show up. And people are like, what are you talking about? What vacationers? There's like a gray alien about to punch Scully in the back of the head. And then he's like, all oh, these gray aliens sure are cool, but where's the, bar- where's the barbecue scene? Are they going to barbecue Scully? People are like, what? You've got some weird fetish. Why do you keep talking about vacationers during X-Files? If this was the first UFO story you ever heard, if you never really picked up on like flying saucers, I think my first really forays into UFOs were like Leonard Nimoy's In Search of, National Enquirer, honestly, I think was a lot of the early UFO stuff for me because they'd have pictures of UFOs and every so often you would catch something on television, but it was rare. You know, I, I'm 46, what am, how old am I? 45, I think right now. Going on 46 or maybe 46. I don't know. I forgot how old I am. But I'm in that age, 45, 46. So you have that, like, you couldn't rent DVDs and stuff like that. You pick up books. But going, that's when you you go to buy the books after you like UFOs. I think my earliest introduction to UFOs were things like the National Enquirer. Every so often would have something on the cover about a UFO. And then eventually Weekly World News and stuff like that. And although that stuff was fake... Those were the first images I saw. This is a disc. This is what an alien looks like. The probe, the anal probes, and stuff like that. If this was, if you're nine, this was the very first UFO story you heard. You, nothing else would make sense after it. Like if this was the formative UFO story, maybe you have heard the term flying saucer before. Maybe you have heard Roswell, but it didn't really interest you. You had no idea. But then one day you sat down and read this. You'd be like, what? You would think that this was the official... This this is what they were all like. You go to watch Star Wars, you're super disappointed. You're like, ah, oh, they totally saw the Death Star. I was expecting it to be a giant patch of dirt. But no, it was a mechanical superstructure. Ah, oh, these aren't real aliens. You, It would be super confusing. And that's what I kind of love about this story. And I want to wrap it up like this. This story just doesn't make any sense. But, but the, it's interesting because we research these other stories. We talk about all these other stories and we go, oh, here's a really cool story about gray aliens doing this because it follows the rules. We've been talking about this a lot this season, like the rules of the paranormal and can the rules be broken and what happens when the rules are broken. When it comes to UFO phenomenon, there are certain things that we expect. Dirt flying through the sky is not one of them. 
<laughs> being full of a bunch of people on a vacation in khaki shorts and t-shirts is not one of them. And I love it. I'm not discounting this story. That's one of the things I like about it. I think sometimes we really do have to look at the anomalies. And it, I'm not saying like, this story's fake because it doesn't have these 10 things we expect in UFO stories. But to be fair, I'm sure there are other UFO researchers who do. And that's a bad look for the research for the paranormal researchers and the UFO researchers. I do think you have to be open to all those things. So how do you classify this story? It's a UFO story. These are people from out of this world. This could be a time slip. This could be some sort of alternate reality. But the fact that he says, I don't understand why you humans like rocks. It really makes it seem like these guys aren't human. And it could be that the technology, we talk about this sometimes too, that the technology or the phenomenon is so bizarre, your brain can't process it. So it makes you remember it in a way that is simple for you. We know that happens with trauma, with real life trauma. Sometimes your brain goes, oh, I remember when I was, I don't want to get into an example. I don't want to get into an example of that. I think you guys know where I'm going, where your brain makes up a story and it just seems implausible at best. So it's possible that this was some sort of high-tech star cruiser. And out stepped Lord Dracor and his Dark Legion. And it was, there were just these abominations from deep space. They have a little grill. They're making turkey patties. And their brain just could not comprehend this cosmic horror. So it they remember it as this bizarre story. That's possible. But it's also possible that out of all the multitudes of alien races, we have the greys, right? Maybe there's the khakis. Maybe there is a race of people out there who just love to wear khaki shorts and have barbecues on other planets. That's what they're into. I love this story because it's so unusual, because it's so insane that you have to wonder how do you classify it? But that's what's so cool about doing this podcast is finding these things and being able to share them too, right? If I wasn't making this podcast, I wouldn't be just spending hours upon hours. I spend a lot of time, a lot of time in my week. It's like 10, 20 hours a week just reading stuff for you guys. But um, And then I get to find awesome stories like this that definitely put a smile on my face. Hopefully put a smile on your face. Now I've outed them. I'm going to spark the human khaki war. We're going to end up... Well, we'll beat them. We'll beat them. I mean, obviously their ships have terrible cloaking technology. They're like, sir, sir, I think we're being invaded. And we look up and we just see these giant dirt clods flying through the blue sky. I think we can take them. I think we could take the khakis. Or maybe we won't even fight them. Maybe we will have a delicious barbecue together. The Cosmic Brotherhood finally united over hamburgers, baked beans, and ice-cold Coca-Cola. Wouldn't that be a beautiful future for all of us? DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. TikTok is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm so glad you listened to it today. Have a great weekend, guys, and be safe.